Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Now, when Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, and so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all of the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now remember, it goes right into the next chapter. There's no break in in days, a few days later. It goes right into chapter 5, and it says, And seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, and again, when the te- when the rabbi, the teacher, would sit down, that was an indication that he was about to do a teaching. And so he sits down, and the disciples, they come to him, and they say, come on, get close, because he's about to teach us. And it says, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. And that word, opened his mouth, means to proclaim loudly, to proclaim in a way that everybody there can hear. He is now going to preach to them. And he goes on and he preaches to them the Sermon on the Mount. And he spoke to them essentially about what it's going to mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Everybody wanted to be a citizen of the bottom of the hill, get healed ministry. Everybody wanted to be a citizen of bring your epileptics, bring your paralytics, bring your demon possessed and get healed. Everybody was interested in that. And the crowds gathered in great numbers. But every time that the crowds gather... Jesus will either say something or do something to disperse the crowds. And so he'll go up on a hill and he said, you want to come with me? You can come up the hill. It's a big hill. And some would go up and someone would say, I'll just stay down here. He would say something hard like, this is what it means to be a disciple of mine. And people would hear that and they were like, well, I'm not into that. I'm just into the healing thing. I'm into the bread thing where you feed people. But I'm not into that, that difficult stuff. And people would leave every time. Jesus wasn't interested in crowds. He was interested in disciples. And teaching people. And here in this Sermon on the Mount, he begins to speak to them about the attitudes. Remember, we called those the Beatitudes, that the attitudes that the citizen of a kingdom of heaven should have. He began to speak to them about anger and about lust and about divorce. And he began to challenge the common religious teachings of the day. He began to teach them about turning the other cheek. He taught them how to pray and how to do so in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself but essentially brings you before the Father. And then he taught them about lordship and what a life that was built on the foundation of Christ as Lord was going to look like. That was essentially the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he taught them there for 30 minutes to an hour. Now, as we come into chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples go back down the hill. So we don't know how many people went up the hill. We know other occasions thousands of people went up the hill. That doesn't necessarily mean that thousands of people went up the hill here. I suspect it was a much smaller number. But his disciples that went up with him, they now make their way down to the bottom of the hill. And all of those folks that were there when he went up the hill a half hour ago are there now again now that he has come down to the bottom of the hill. And immediately they get thrust back into action. So let's read the first four verses. Today we're only going to study four verses of our passage in Matthew 8 today. And let's read those verses, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. The very people that were there when Jesus went up the hill are now there at the bottom of the hill. And they immediately, as you see in verse 1, they immediately start crowding around Jesus. Notice there, and, and try to get the picture of things where the crowds are pressing in on him as soon as he comes down the hill. It says, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, pressed him, pushed in on him, calling out to him, teacher, 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 do these things. Now, the last thing that the crowd had seen we read was, again, chapter 4, verse 23, where it says, every disease and every affliction he healed that was among the people. And so that's the last thing the people saw. They, they milled about. They kind of went on with their business a little bit. They didn't go too far away. Jesus and the crowd of people that were with him start coming down the hill, so they start flocking back to where Jesus is going to get to flat ground there, and they expect him to pick up exactly where he left off. Now, one of those people, we read in verse 2, is a leper. And so again, verse 2 says, Behold, a leper came to him, knelt before him, and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, we don't do a lot in these days with leprosy, but leprosy was and is a horrible disease. It's been a horrible disease throughout history. Leprosy is a disease that attacks a person's nervous system. It's a disease that kills particularly the nerves, particularly in the extremities. It deadens the pain in those areas there. So you, you can put your finger in a candle, for instance, and not feel the flame until your finger's on fire, essentially, because it deadens the nerve, uh, particularly in the extremities. And it leads to, leprosy leads to all sorts of injuries and infections and things that go unnoticed by the sufferer. It's only relatively recently, it's in the late 1800s, that physicians have been able to contain the effects of leprosy. So if you got it any time leading up to the late 1800s, it was pretty much, I'm sorry, buddy, you got it, and it's going to do what it's going to do in your life. It's not until the late 1800s that they were able to contain the effects of leprosy in a person's life. It still exists today in the developed world. People in the United States, I think I read the number was something like 600 people in the United States have leprosy today in the United States, but we contain it here. We have medicine and so on that's able to contain it. But in the undeveloped world, it continues to, excuse me, it continues to kind of run rampant in people's lives as it did in the times of Jesus. Now, I purposely chose not to show you some pictures of leprosy because it is, it's a gruesome disease. And you can go home, you can Google it, get the whole family together, it'll be a fun time for you. And you can look, and it's, it's a difficult thing even to look at. All right, but that's leprosy. Today, leprosy goes by the name Hansen's disease. That's the name of the doctor that discovered how to isolate the bacteria which caused it to spread in a person's life. You can't heal leprosy, even today, but you can contain leprosy. And so in Bible times, to contract leprosy was devastating for an individual. They compared leprosy to a person having died. So you're like, well, how's your father doing? Yeah, he got leprosy last year. You know, it's as if he died or something. That's how they treated it. And in many ways, a person did die. 
because of the belief that leprosy was highly contagious, and in some cases it was, not always, but because of the belief that leprosy was highly contagious, a leprous person was immediately put out of the community. They were isolated from society, and the only people that they could interact with were other people that already had leprosy. And so leper colonies would form. We still have leper colonies in the world today. According to Jewish law and Jewish custom, a leper was required, required to keep themselves at least six feet from another individual. And if they were upwind from that individual, they had to keep themselves 150 feet from people so that you wouldn't spread it through air particles or whatever it may be. If a leper was coming into a, an area where there were a lot of people that were ahead, they had to begin yelling 150 feet away, uh, unclean, unclean, leper coming into your midst. And then people could either take off and get out of there, run for the hills, or if they stayed there, that was their own fault and their own responsibility, and they ran the risk of contracting leprosy themselves. So leprosy is a disease that brings isolation and alienation from society and I think even more importantly, from a person's family, a person's friends, completely separate. Lepers were treated as untouchables, unable to have physical contact with anyone that they might expose to infection. So leprosy would bring about a physical alienation in a person's life. But leprosy also brought about a spiritual alienation to the victim as well. Because a person with leprosy was considered ceremonially, religiously, unclean. And as such, they were unfit for worship at the temple or in the synagogues. Not only that, but first century Jewish rabbis taught that leprosy was the direct judgment of God. This is what they taught. The Bible doesn't teach this, but they taught that it was the direct judgment of God in every instance. And that point being that the person that has leprosy was being judged by God because they were somehow a terrible sinner. And God was exposing that sin by giving them this disease. That was the idea that was taught. So not only then does leprosy bring physical alienation, but it brings spiritual alienation and isolation in a person's life as well. Leprosy had and still has no cure. As I said, you can contain it today, but you can't cure it. And so a person that contracted leprosy in that day, and in some parts of the world even today, they with along with the leprosy came a hopelessness. My life is effectively over. I'm going to live the rest of my days as a person that is alienated from God and from other people. Can you sense the hopelessness that that would bring? A person with leprosy would have to bring themselves to the place of accepting that the rest of their life was going to be like this. Alienation, isolation, loneliness, and hopelessness. And that was their allotted, life in, allotted lot in life, and there's nothing they could, they could do about it. Unless, of course, there's a person that can heal every manner of sickness and disease. If only there was a person like that in the first century that could do that. My friends, that's Jesus. You act like, oh, I hope there is one. That's Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's chapter 4, verse 23. He's healing every manner of sickness and disease. Now, I don't know exactly what happened here. I don't know the exact scenario. But in my mind, I have sort of imagined this scenario that Jesus at the end of chapter 4 he's encountering folks with all sorts of diseases all sorts of infirmities and he's healing those people so sick people are being brought to him and he's healing them people with various diseases are being brought to them and he, him and he's healing them paralyzed people 
are being healed and walking away from him. People that suffered from seizures are being healed. Even the demon-possessed are coming to him, being brought to him, and being delivered of those demons. Now, in my imagination, what I picture is that there's a guy that is observing these things and is thinking to himself about his friend or his father or his brother who was diagnosed with leprosy a while back and is down in the community, the leper community there. And he's thinking to himself, if only Jimmy were here, Jimmy could be healed of that terrible disease that he has. But the guy says, you know what, if I ran to get Jimmy now, Jesus will be long gone by the time, you know, I get back with Jimmy. If only Jimmy were here. Well, then Jesus goes up the hill. And it takes about 30 minutes to get up to the hill. He's going to teach up there for at least 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. It's going to take him another 20, 30 minutes to get back down. So the guy is figuring, I got an hour. I can get down to that community. I can find Jimmy. I can get, I don't know if that's his name, but I could get him back here. And perhaps Jesus could heal him as well. And so the man takes off and he begins to sprint and he finds his buddy and he tells him about the man that is healing all manner of sickness and disease. And he convinces him, he says, you should come. And so the guy, maybe reluctantly, maybe excited, he gets up and he starts running with this guy and he gets there. And the instant, notice as the verse says in chapter 8, verse 2, it seems the instant Jesus comes down the bottom of the hill, here is this leper front and center, and again, Google what a leper looks like, you can only imagine. Here's this guy front and center, and he says to him, almost before Jesus even has a chance to say anything, he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I love this passage. Now, I want you to take notice of something here. It says, behold, in verse 2, a leper came to him, and knelt before him. If you're reading the King James Version, perhaps some other versions, you'll notice that it says that he worshipped him. This man is not just respectfully bowing before Jesus, kind of showing a little bit of deference to him. That's not what he's doing. He's not even genuflecting before him. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and every time you came into the church, when you got to the front of the church or whatever at the altar, you had to kneel real quick and, and do the sign of the cross. You know, to be honest with you, it didn't mean much to me. You know, I just kind of did what I was told to do, taught to do as a kid. And that's not what this guy is doing. This guy falls down before Jesus and is worshiping Jesus. Now, that's significant because it, we know from the scripture that it is God alone that is to be worshiped. And notice, Jesus doesn't rebuke this man for worshiping him. He doesn't correct him, doesn't, doesn't accept it, you know, and say, like, okay, reluctantly, like, you don't understand, you know. He doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't rebuke him, but he actually does accept it. We read this in Acts chapter 10. It's a story of a fellow by the name of Cornelius, Cornelius. And he falls down, and he begins to worship the apostle Peter. And Peter, in Acts 10, lifts him up, essentially says to him, what are you doing? Don't do that, he says. I'm a man just like you. We read about it in verses 25. Cornelius met him, he fell down, he worshipped him, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up because I too am a man. In Acts chapter 14, we have an account of Paul and Barnabas. They're serving as missionaries. They go into an area that had been untouched by the gospel. God begins to do some miraculous things through Paul and Barnabas, and the people start acting all peculiar. Now, everyone's in a different language saying things, and Paul and Barnabas don't really know what's going on. But eventually, Paul and Barnabas realize 
that the people are worshiping Paul and Barnabas as gods. And once they figure that out, they're like, what is going on here? And this is what they say. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? I love this verse. I, I say that a lot, don't I? I just like the whole Bible. Um, but it goes on. He says, we're men of like nature with you. And we bring you the good news that you shouldn't turn from these vain things to a living God. What are you doing? This is why we're here to tell you not to do stuff like this. And they were worshiping them, but Paul and Barnabas stopped them. We read in the book of Revelation that John the Apostle, Revelation chapter 22, John the Apostle falls down in front of the angel that had been used to reveal these things to him. And it says this, and when I heard Paul or John speaking, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. You see, all of the examples in Scripture, and there's probably others, but these examples of Scripture where people fell down and worshiped someone other than God, that person, that angel, responds and says, no, worship is only for God. And so here is a man that falls down in front of all of this crowd and worships Jesus, and Jesus receives it. He accepts it. Now, there's two explanations for this. One is that Jesus is a scoundrel of a man. He's this religious leader, and yet he's receiving the worship of people. And he shouldn't do that. Or that Jesus is God, and he rightly receives the worship. That's what I'm going with. I'm going with number two in those two options there. And so Jesus receives the worship of this man. And again, he falls down before him, he worships him, and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice this about the guy. He has absolute confidence that Jesus can heal him. Absolute confidence that Jesus has the ability, the power to heal him. What's in question for this guy is if Jesus is willing to, or if he actually would, heal him. Now, I don't know if this guy was present. I gave you a scenario a few minutes ago that he wasn't, but I don't know if he was present at one point in Jesus's teaching, because you recall when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he taught them to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so this guy doesn't come to Jesus dictating to Jesus what he has to do. Jesus, if you really love me, you'll heal me right now. If you're really as powerful as you say you are, you'll heal me right now. He doesn't dictate what Jesus has to do. He says, look, I know you can, I just don't know if you're willing, but if you are, I'd like to be healed, he says to him. He knew that Jesus could heal him. The question is whether or not Jesus would. Now, why wouldn't Jesus want to heal this man? This should be like a no-brainer, right? Jesus wants to heal everybody, doesn't he? Well, we don't see that in the scripture, actually. Jesus can heal everybody. We pray as believers for folks that are sick or whatever it may be. We pray that God would heal them, but we learn from the example of scripture is that God doesn't always heal people for whatever reason. He can, but for whatever reason, he doesn't. Perhaps the best example of this is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he tells us of an infirmity, infirmity that he had in his flesh. He refers to it as a thorn in his side or a thorn in his flesh. And he went before the Lord a number of times, three in particular, that God would remove that thorn from his flesh. And God doesn't. Finally gives him an answer, and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And it says in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And the response 
that the Lord ultimately gave him was this, is my grace is sufficient for you. Chapter 12, verse 9, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. That was God's will for Paul's life. And so the infirmity was not removed from Paul in that. God could remove it, but he chose not to because the Lord saw this as an opportunity instead for Paul to learn about the sustaining and strengthening grace of God, even through life's difficulties. So here we are now back in Matthew chapter 8, and this guy that comes before the Lord, it's not a question of if he could heal him, but if he would heal him. And as we see in verse 3, the Lord will, look, it says, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And just like that, just like that, the man's disease was gone. All of the alienation that he experienced, all of the separation, all of the hopelessness, all of that gone in an instant with just one touch from Jesus. The man is completely set free from all the effects of his disease. Now, I want you to notice something about it with just one touch. Now, Jesus didn't have to touch this man. You know that, right? Even just a little bit later in this chapter, if you've read the entire chapter in preparation for today, and just a little bit later, he essentially speaks a word and a guy is healed. In reality, he doesn't even say anything. A guy comes to me and says, can you heal my servant? He said, you don't have to come to the house. Just say a word and I know it'll be done. I'm a man under authority just like you. And Jesus doesn't even say a word. And he says, go back to your house. The guy's already healed. And so he doesn't have to be physically present. He doesn't have to reach out his hand and touch this guy. As a matter of fact, if the guy looked like some of the pictures we have of leprosy, none of us would want to reach out our hand and touch this particular guy because it was gruesome. And yet it says here that Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches this particular guy. If you look at the, the parallel passage of this account in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 41, it tells us prior to reaching out his hand, it says, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. Moved with pity, moved with compassion. So Jesus doesn't reach out his hand to touch this guy so that the guy can be healed. He reaches out his hand to touch this guy because he has pity on the guy. He has compassion on the fellow. When was the last time that this leper had been touched? When was the last time that this leper came into the presence of others and they didn't scatter in all different directions, avoiding accidentally brushing into him? When was the last time that somebody looked this guy in the face, in the eye, not with disgust, but with compassion and with pity, and then reached out their hand and touched him? Jesus didn't have to touch this guy, but he does so because this man needed to be touched. You understand the difference of what I'm describing? Emotionally, this guy needed a touch. And so Jesus reaches out his hand, and he does so. Jesus, he knows how to enter into each one of our lives and provide for us exactly what we need. Jesus is a gifted minister. Isn't that an understatement? He's a gifted minister, and he knows how to minister not according to a formula. And I'd encourage you, if you minister in any particular way in people's lives, be very careful not to minister according to a formula. 
And again, I liken it to the, the people that call you up and try and sell you stuff, you know, and you answer a particular way and they know they're supposed to turn to page 35 and keep the conversation going. And if you say yes, go to page 42. And if you say no, they go to page 48 or whatever. And they just follow this particular formula. Jesus doesn't minister in that particular way. Everyone's different. Everybody is reached in slightly different ways. And so he doesn't follow a formula, but he ministers according to the need of the guy that is in front of him there. And he touches the guy. Now, the passage isn't over. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. See that you tell no one. Can you imagine? How is this guy going to tell nobody? What's he going to do when he shows up back at his house and his face is completely healed and all of these things? And they're like, what are you doing here? Don't you still have a disease or something like what's going on? Well, Jesus' point here is not to not tell anybody about this and keep this a secret for the rest of his life. His point is not to promote this in such a way that Jesus now becomes sort of this circus act that you should come see the healer of all diseases because that wasn't Jesus' purpose. So Jesus is not saying you can't tell anyone of what happened, but rather not to run around promoting it. Now, if you go and you look at the Mark passage, you know what he did? He ran around promoting it. He told everybody of what Jesus had done. The guy had been healed. And I don't blame the guy, I don't know, but whatever. Um, so he runs around, he's telling everyone here. But Jesus did not come to just be this circus act. And his primary goal in life wasn't to heal the whole world of its diseases. Seven different times in the Gospels, Jesus, after he healed a person or did some kind of a miraculous act in a person's life, he instructed those people not to speak of this to other people. Now, that's interesting because Jesus preached the gospel to thousands of people, and he commanded his disciples to preach the gospel to thousands of people. Jesus is much more interested in dealing with people's eternal sickness than he was in dealing with their physical sickness. As I said, he was not a circus act. And his goal was not to perform great wonders and draw great crowds. And as I began today, almost without exception, when the crowds began to come, Jesus would either slip away or he would say something which would cause the crowds to slip away. He would say something hard, something maybe to, to some degree even defensive or uh, offensive. Jesus will heal throughout the Gospels. Jesus continues to heal miraculously today, but this was not the reason for his first coming. Jesus did not come primarily to deal with man's temporal condition. He came to deal with man's eternal condition. Jesus could heal everyone of every ailment, but the day would still come when they would come to the end of their days, and then what? If he was just about healing people temporally, they come to the end of their days, they still have an eternal problem. And that's the problem Jesus came to address, man's spiritual ailment. Man has a sin problem that separates him from a holy God. And so he says to this guy, don't tell anyone with the exception of the priest as Moses commanded. So again, look at verse 4. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, He's referring to, Jesus is referring back to the book 
of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 13, Leviticus chapter 14 give us some instructions about leprosy. Chapter 13, which I don't know if you've read, I, I usually read my Bible in the morning. Sometimes I, I read it while I'm having breakfast or whatever. Do not read Leviticus 13 while you're eating food. It is, it is a disgusting chapter. It'll turn your stomach in so many ways there. But Leviticus chapter 13 is the chapter that Moses presents to the priest with instructions to how to diagnose a person uh, that has a various skin disease. Now, in the Bible, every skin disease was referred to as leprosy. So some of the things that we classify as uh, what we classify today, what they, excuse me, what they classified as leprosy then would not necessarily be what we classify as leprosy today. Any skin disease was diagnosed essentially as leprosy. And so then they would, they'd go in and they say, all right, if this happens, you know, after a week, then we know this. And if this happens after a week, then it's okay, you can do that. And so you can go ahead and you can read through that. It's a lengthy chapter. As I said, it's a bit repulsing at times. But it explains what a person should do in the midst of the children of Israel. It explains what the priest should do. And then ultimately how a final determination was made as to whether or not the problem is or is not leprosy. That's chapter 13. Now, Leviticus chapter 14, Moses presents instructions for dealing with a leprous person who believes he has been cleansed. And so here's a guy that is, you know, off in the little colony, and he's looking, and he says, you know what? It looks like it's getting better. And so what does that person do? Well, that person goes down to the priest, and it says this in verse 2 of Leviticus 14, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought before the priest, and then it goes on the rest of the chapter, and the priest will do this, and he'll do this, and he'll do that, and he will essentially diagnose whether the person has been healed of that disease or not. You can read Leviticus 14 on your own as well. But based on this command then, that a person in Israel that had a skin disease who thinks they were healed, they have to present themselves to the priest. That's what Jesus is telling this particular man he is doing. So that the priest can pronounce him clean. Now, I suspect anybody standing there could look at the guy and say, you've been clean. Look at you. You were this, now you're that. And they could say it. But ceremonially, a priest had to pronounce that. If this guy was going to go back to the temple, go back to his synagogue, then the priest had to give the okay to that. And so Jesus is sending him back to the priest. Now I try, again, to imagine the priest's response. Because he's probably had a lot of people come and say, hey, I got this skin disease, what do you think it is? But nobody comes in chapter 14 and says, I've been healed. Can you declare me ceremonially clean? Because remember, leprosy, you didn't get healed of leprosy. Even today, you don't get healed of it. You just get, you contain it. And so no doubt the priest is caught a bit off guard when this guy says, I've been healed of my leprosy. Now, I find this interesting. There is a law to pronounce a person clean from leprosy, even though, according to the law of nature, people never get clean of leprosy. You see how the Lord is sort of anticipating this? There's no record in Jewish history of a guy, of people coming, like recorded history, not your Bible, but recorded history of people coming and being pronounced clean of leprosy. So it either never happened or it was extremely rare. 
And so I imagine when this guy comes to the priest and he presents himself, he says something like, hey, look, I'm here to present myself because I want you to pronounce me clean of my leprosy. And I imagine the priest is trying to be cool because, you know, he's supposed to know everything. And he's like, yeah, okay, look, I'll be right back. Then he goes in the back and he's quickly flipping through the Bible because he's not familiar with that. He doesn't do anything with this. He's not used to it. And so he finds Leviticus chapter 14. He finds the procedures and he ultimately declares this person to be ceremonially clean. Now here's a question. Why doesn't this priest that is being asked to do what no priest, or to be generous, very few priests before him (coughs) have ever been asked to do, pronounce a person clean from leprosy, why doesn't he immediately come out and find out who did this in his life? Who's the guy that healed you? Nobody's ever healed of leprosy. How did this happen to you? Well, there's a guy up in Galilee, and he came down off of the hill, and I was there, and I said, look, you can make me clean. I believe you can, and he did. Why doesn't this priest go out? Now, we don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he did run out there and see who it is that could heal an incurable disease. We don't know if he did or didn't. We do know this. Most of the priests didn't. Most of the priests weren't moved by this miraculous act. They weren't. They didn't receive the clue. You know what? This is a tip-off. Something's going on here in Israel that doesn't typically go on. They didn't read that. They didn't feel that. They didn't go out and find out who this Jesus was. The vast majority of priests and scribes of his day didn't. We do read the vast majority of priests and scribes went out to find Jesus to tell him to stop doing these things, to challenge his authority. What right do you have to say these things, to teach these things, to do these things? Many of the priests went out to do those things. But with rare exception, did they come out to see if Jesus indeed was the Messiah? It seems from our Bibles that the religious folks had made up their mind about Jesus, that they had established their systems and Jesus didn't fit into those systems, that they had ceased to be wowed by the miraculous, and as a result, they missed the Messiah from heaven. They had developed in their mind a picture of who the Messiah would be. And since Jesus didn't fit that picture, then they rejected him as the Messiah. And, you know, I do wonder in our lives, I think that sometimes happens to us, even as believers. Now, for the unbeliever, I've I've spoken with plenty of unbelievers, particularly in our area. We have a lot of folks that come out of, like, a Catholic background or whatever. I grew up in a Catholic background, and I didn't know Jesus until I was about 18 years old. So that tells me that you can be a Catholic, a Protestant, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, or whatever. You can be in some religious movement and not be in relationship with God. And so I'm sharing with some Catholic back- folks from a Catholic background, and one of them in particular responded to me and said, look, I'm Catholic. That basically meant stop talking to me because I'm not interested in that. I'm not leaving my religious system. You see, we still do that in our day. But I think even as Christians, we do that as well. So you're born anew, you've been born from above, you've been born again, whatever the term you want to use, and yet you still have in your mind, this is the way that God works, and if it doesn't measure up with what I've established in my mind, well, then I'm not going there. I'm not going to open up my heart, I'm not going to let God do kind of a work within my heart because it doesn't fit my criteria of how God is supposed to work. And I wonder if in your life you've placed God neatly in a box and you refuse to let him outside of that box. I wonder if you've ceased to be wowed by the things that God has done 
and the things that God is doing in your life. Now, this account of the leper, as Jesus comes down this mountain, I think is one of the most significant accounts in the scripture. This is the first individual that is described by Matthew in this book of Jesus healing that individual. Remember back in chapter 4, it said he healed all manners of diseases and all that. But this is the first specific person that Matthew points to as being healed. The first specific case that is presented for us. And I think it's a significant one. Because leprosy, I think, is a picture of something that all of us have or do suffer with. As we said, leprosy is an incurable disease. And despite the fact that it's an incurable disease, God makes a provision in his word for the person that would be cured of that disease. That's significant. That tells me that nobody is beyond hope. That tells me that that which is impossible with man is possible with God. That tells me that God is not limited by the laws of nature, nor is he limited by the apparent circumstance. And that's significant for you and for I in our walks with the Lord. Because we're carrying a lot of baggage along with us. Some of us in this room aren't even believers yet. We haven't given ourselves to Jesus Christ. We're still carrying our sin baggage with us. But others of us that are believers, we still got remnants of that old man that are in us. Bitterness, unforgiveness, selfishness, pride, and arrogance. Those things are there. And if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, the longer that I walk with the Lord... I just begin to accept those things. This is who I am. I am an angry person. I'm a bitter person. I'm an unforgiving person. I have that relationship that is broken with that person over there, and that's just the way it's going to be for the rest of my walk with the Lord. And Jesus comes into that, and he says, you think you have this incurable disease. You refuse to let me touch it. I'm going to touch it. I'm going to heal it. You're thinking of that, that guy. I'm going to heal it, he says. I think a lot of us here need to come to the base of the hill, so to speak, and say, Lord, this is the impossible thing that I need you to do. And present that to the Lord. And see if he'll heal you of that. I guarantee you he will. I guarantee you he will. So if you're at that place where you're like, you know what? This is just who I am and what I'm going to be like for the rest of my walk with Jesus until I go to heaven. That's really a sad thing because he desires so much more for every one of us. He wants to grow us and sanctify us and make us more into the image of his son. But he's not going to do it unless you finally open up and say, all right, God, do it. And then he will and he'll intervene and he'll stand. So that's one thing I, I see here. The second thing is this, the way that this man approaches Jesus. Now, I told you that leprosy was a horrible disease, just terribly disfiguring of a person, the things that it did to a person emotionally and spiritually and certainly physically. And despite all of that, despite the fact that this man was suffering terribly from this disease, despite the fact that he is ceremonially unclean, despite the fact that he is considered an untouchable in his society, the man comes to Jesus anyway. Do you see that? He comes anyway to Jesus. Now, throughout the Bible, leprosy is presented as a type of sin. And just like leprosy, sin alienates people from God and from other people. 
Just like leprosy, sin, it starts on the inside. It deadens, if you will, our, uh, our ability to sense and touch and feel. It begins on the inside and then it begins to manifest itself on the outside. As I said, it hardens our senses. It makes us oblivious to the damaging effect of the disease, of sin. And so here's a lesson then for us. This man, despite that, comes to Jesus. It's not your responsibility to clean yourself up first before coming to Jesus. And that doesn't just mean about salvation. And so perhaps some of you were sitting here, and a few moments ago I talked about unforgiveness and bitterness and these things here, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, when I get, when I get home, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get right with the Lord. I'm going to call that person or whatever it may be. And you're sort of planning for later on. Right now is when you make the determination. Right in the spot right here. And you say, you know what, I'm done with it. I'm forgiving that person, I'm letting it go. I'm forgetting the, getting the bitterness, I'm letting it go. And I'm moving on. Jesus, before I walk out the door, heal me now. And that's what Jesus does. He heals us. So this man doesn't go about trying to clean himself up. He comes in all the effects of his leprosy. He comes with his unforgiveness. He comes with his bitterness, and he says, clean me. If he were to clean himself up first before coming, he would have never come to Jesus. And if you want to be healed of those things you're carrying around, don't clean yourself for, up first. Let him do it right here this morning. Nowhere in the Bible are we called to clean ourselves up first before coming to Jesus because he's the one that does the cleansing. We come to him in all of our sin and all of the effects of our sin and we allow him to cleanse us. And so then we come to our final point this morning and the title of the sermon is simply, Can He? Can he heal? Can he set you free from your unforgiveness? Can he set you free from your addiction that you may have? And that's not just to alcohol or drugs or these things, though some of you may struggle with that. Pornography, selfishness, your flesh, all of those things, they, they almost take on an addictive nature in our lives. Can Jesus set you free from that? Can Jesus heal your struggling marriage? No doubt, there's many of us, not many, maybe, there's a bunch of us in this room, we're good Christians. We plug away. We go to church on Sunday morning together. We sit side by side with one another. But the reality is our, our marriages are struggling. And we're wondering, can Jesus enter in and heal this? Can he do what he says that he can do, what, he said, what I thought he was going to do when I took that vow, when I got married way back when? Can he heal it? Well, I think those types of questions that I've raised here, can he heal your struggling marriage? Can he heal your addiction? Can he set you or your loved one free? The answer this passage tells us overwhelmingly is yes. Yes, he can. You don't need to just slog along as a Christian, nor do I. There should be great joy in following the Lord. Not necessarily happiness and wonder and smiles on our face at all times, but there should be great joy in being in relationship with the creator of the world, who's also your redeemer and gave his life for you. And so if you have these things, bring them to the Lord and let him heal you. Let him restore the joy of your salvation, which has long since been dissipated. Let him bring that back and birth that again within your heart this morning. Come to the Lord with your hopelessness. No Christian should be hopeless. 
If you look at your life and say, there's no hope for me and my sin, there's no hope for me and my bad marriage, there's no hope for me and this and that and so on, that should not be in your vernacular. It should not be in your way of thinking. There is not hopelessness for the believer, but hope. Can he heal you? Yes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a passage like this, Lord. What a healthy reminder for us as your children. And Father, Lord, there's a lot of people here this morning, and we all are in a different place with you. Some of us have yet to even begin a relationship with you. And we know that we're in sin. We know that that sin separates us from a holy God. And we wonder if, Lord, uh, that can be, we can be healed of that and brought into relationship with you. And Father, I pray this morning that you would just impress upon the hearts of uh, those that are here thinking that way. Lord, that the answer is yes. Just get to the bottom of the hill and encounter Jesus and he'll heal you. But Lord, here we are on a Sunday morning when your saints gather, which is an indicator that the vast majority of us here, we do know you. We are believers. We've been born again. We've experienced the joy of our salvation. And yet as time has gone on, Lord, there have been areas of our lives in which our flesh has sort of seeped in and dominated the life of the Spirit. And Father, my prayer for us today is, Lord, that every one of us here, every single one of us here, would take every single thing that is keeping us from advancing forward in our walk with you. And Lord, we just lay it down at your feet and say, Lord, could you take this away from me? I can't help but picture uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Lord. When this Christian just came and he had that backpack on his back and it was just weighing him down and causing such heaviness and hindering, Lord, every th single thing he was trying to do when he finally comes to the cross and he dumps the pack off of his back and he went forth in freedom. Lord, that is your desire for each of us. So, Lord, by your spirit, we ask that you would convince us of the reality of these things we considered today. So that before we leave here today, that we can dump all the junk and move forward with you. Lord, that would just cause great rejoicing within your heart. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.